Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. What a joy it is to open the Word of God together to find the the warmth and the delight of truth. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Let's pray for a moment and then we'll read this text. Our Father, we come to you now having prepared our own hearts with your help, with the singing of the glorious hymns of our faith, with our worshipful prayers to begin earlier in this service, with our giving. We have prepared our hearts, Lord, and now we eagerly desire to receive from your hand, to receive the truth of the word. I pray that you would speak to us this morning through the glorious revelation of the Bible. We pray that we would, as we have the privilege to hear the very words of Jesus himself, that we would be changed more and more into his likeness. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be obedient to James chapter 1, which commands us concerning the preached word to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, that we would receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. May you be blessed by our faithfulness to listen, and may we be blessed to be more like Christ through his word. And we pray in his name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I've tacked on that last little part. That is the first application to what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. More accurately, this is the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray in this way, and it's an outline, it's a model prayer. If you want to identify the Lord's Prayer, probably more accurately, you would go to John chapter 17, sometimes called the great high priestly prayer, but that's the prayer of the Lord Jesus. So we'll call this the disciples' prayer from here on out. This is a prayer which is the opposite of the self-righteous prayer described in verse 7, Where Jesus said, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. This is a model prayer, and as we're going to see over the coming weeks, it reflects a proper kingdom attitude, an attitude of a citizen of the kingdom. It's informed by the priorities, it's informed by the attitudes that a disciple of the king ought to have. Now, this particular prayer, this wasn't a brand new concept to the Jews listening to Jesus' sermon on the mount here. It certainly wasn't new to the disciples, the, the more inner circle of those that he was teaching. As a matter of fact, the disciples would have recognized some elements of this prayer. They would have recognized it as being based on Old Testament passages such as Isaiah 29, 22 and 23, Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23 as well. And this is very important for us because 
faith in Christ and the, the coming of the Messiah, faith in Jesus was not some off-the-wall, brand-new concept. It wasn't a, a radical departure from the worship of the God of the Mosaic Covenant, from the worship of the God who rescued Israel from Egypt, the worship of the God who brought the punished Jews back from exile. No, the worship of Messiah had been the goal of biblical Yahwehism, you might call it, all along. That's always been the goal. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, Israel was to look for a prophet, capital P, who would be like Moses. And Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, it is to him you shall listen. And I should point this out too, that this Hebrew verb to listen, this wasn't an imperative. It wasn't a command. It was a declaration that it is to him some of you shall listen. You will listen to him. You will listen to him. And in fact, the verb form means over and over and over and over again. That some Israelites would listen. They'll listen and obey perpetually forever and ever. And so for Jesus to command us to pray in this way, particularly to this Jewish audience, to give this model prayer, it had some very familiar elements to it already. The disciples' prayer is very similar to the ancient Jewish prayer, the Kaddish. Beginning back in the Middle Ages, the Kaddish became known almost solely as a prayer for the dead or a prayer for the, the dying Jew. But originally, it was an ancient prayer meant to be prayed right after hearing the word of God either read or preached. It was a prayer you prayed in response to the scriptures, particularly in a public worship setting in the synagogue. Now, the ancient form of the prayer is shorter, but today's version goes something like this. May the great name of God be exalted and sanctified throughout the world, which he has created according to his will. May his kingship be established in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the entire household of Israel, swiftly and in the near future. May his great name be blessed forever and ever, blessed, praised, glorified, exalted, extolled, honored, elevated, lauded be the name of the Holy One. Blessed is he, above and beyond any blessings and hymns, praises and consolations which are uttered in the world. May there be abundant peace from heaven and life upon us and upon all Israel. He who makes peace in his high holy places, may he bring peace upon us and upon all Israel. Amen. And you can hear some familiar elements from the disciples' prayer. Jesus said in the disciples' prayer, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. The Kaddish says, may the great name of God be exalted, elevated, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. The disciples' prayer says, your kingdom come, and in many different ways. One example, the Kaddish says, may his kingship be established in your lifetime and in your days. And we can hear, come Lord Jesus in that, can't you? The disciples' prayer says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Kaddish says, may there be abundant peace from heaven and life upon us and upon all Israel. Where? Earlier in the prayer it said, on earth. And so remembering that the gospel of Matthew is centered around the presentation of the king who is offering the kingdom of God, a real and genuine offer, the kingdom of God is already revealed in the Old Testament. This isn't a new kingdom. It's not a new idea. It's not some, some completely off-the-wall, brand-new original concept. This is the kingdom always that's been offered 
all through the Old Testament. Remembering that, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is simply adding new covenant messianic revelation to what has already been promised, already been revealed, already been foretold. And so Jesus begins this model prayer immediately with a focus on worshiping God. That is the focus of the Old Testament, worshiping God. Israel failed because they failed to worship him in covenant obedience, and he's bringing us right back to this, worship God. And that's our topic this morning in our series on how to pray in power. I want to talk to you about the power of worship in prayer. The power of worship in prayer. Now let me start off by offering two short definitions. Let me tell you what worship is not and what worship is. I think this is one of the most misunderstood theological concepts as borne out by churches that have no idea what worship is. So what worship is not... Worship is not the seeking of mystical emotional experience. Worship is not the seeking of mystical emotional experience. And this could be through prayer or singing, any method of creating a state of emotional ecstasy. Now, if you are genuinely worshiping, is there at times emotion involved? Absolutely. But let me ask you a question. Suppose in the typical American evangelical church, a man by the name of Job walked in. And I wonder if we have any idea what he would be thinking as he looks around and says to himself, they have no idea what worship is. Job, the one who worshiped God in dust and in ashes in the midst of complete and total life-transforming tragedy in his life. And he is an example of worshiping God. He said the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He fell on his face and he worshiped. There's no emotional ecstasy there. There's no uh, pre-programmed, just uh, almost Pavlovian, just drooling over some emotion that you're going to feel. That is not worship. And I think where the American church has gone so wrong is thinking that worship is a product that I consume, that it's something for me, and it's not. So let me tell you what worship is. I'll repeat this a couple of times. Worship is The response to God by redeemed people. Worship is the response to God by redeemed people for his existence, his character, and his mercy. Worship is the response to God by redeemed people for his existence, his character, and his mercy to us through Christ. That's as short as I can get it. Worship is about God. Worship is the response to God by redeemed people for his existence, his character, and his mercy to us through Christ. Why is that important? Have you ever thought about worshiping God just because he exists? That's the first reason we worship him. Worship ascribes to God all that is due to him. In word, in thought, in the gathering of his people, in his actions, in your, your obedience, it is the ascribing to God what is owed to him, what, who he is. Worship gives credit to God for being God. Or if I could put it this way, worship takes credit, takes value, takes worth away from yourself and gives it all to God. Worship has nothing to do with you. You are the worshiper. That's it. Now, based on that definition, I'd like to begin our journey over the coming weeks through the disciples' prayer with 
our attention this morning only on verse 9, which properly begins this prayer with an attitude of humility and deference, an attitude of, of being crushed before the Lord, an attitude and expression of worship. And so to give some substance to what it means to worship God in prayer, I want to give three declarations and two requests in prayer. And this is just really following the outline of the prayer itself. Three declarations and two requests in prayer. And we're doing two different things here because verse 9 overlaps the beginning of the prayer, which begins with declarations, a, a proclamation of that which is true, And then begins a series of requests, and the first request that we'll look at can be subdivided into two categories, so I'm going to treat them as two requests. But three declarations and two requests in prayer to give you a focus of genuine worship. The first declaration, declare your gospel relationship with God. Declare your gospel relationship with God. Jesus referred to God as Father 43 times in Matthew, 38 times has the personal possessive pronoun. In other words, your father, or my father, or their father, or his father, and in this case, our father. Now, this is a very important distinction because Matthew's gospel never presents God as the father of all people. And if you ever heard anybody say, even from a pulpit, all people are God's children, that is not an accurate statement. God is not the father of all people. God is father only of those who belong to God. And the only way to belong to God is to be a repentant, genuine worshiper of his son. One of the most beloved verses we have, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. And this statement that all people are, are God's children is very contrary to what Scripture actually teaches. 1 John 3.10 divides all humanity into two categories, the children of God and the children of the devil. You can't be a child of God and a child of the devil. It's one or the other. And in fact, on top of that, you were dependent on Christ. You were dependent on the goodwill, the grace, the kindness, the benevolence of Christ, listen to this, to introduce you to the Father. That was his decision. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Why can you have God as your Father? Because the Son of God decided to reveal the Father to you. That's the only reason. In this relationship with God the Father, it must be purchased. It had to be paid for. Your sin debt had to be eradicated, erased, and paid. Otherwise, you remain in relationship to God only as your judge. And Satan remains your true father. And in Matthew's gospel, the true children of God are identifiable because of their resemblance to the Father. We resemble our Father You remember back in chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You remember verses 44 and 45 of chapter 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. True children of God brought to the Father by the Son are recognizable. Why is that? Well, it's very simple. 
It's because they're demonstrating the grace of God. They're not vengeful. They're not vindictive. They're holy and righteous before the Lord in their behavior with others. They're different. They're set apart. Or if I could put it this way, if, if those around you are fairly uncertain who you serve, or whether you're a Christian, then you're not resembling your father. But we are to resemble our father. By the way, Jesus said to pray our father. That's not to say that individual prayers of my father are somehow de-emphasized. Jesus has just prescribed personal prayer in the previous verses. But by saying our father, Jesus is setting up the expectation of a gathered corporate time of prayer together where we are as the church gathered. Your relationship to God through Christ is personal to be sure, but it is not private. Anyone who says my relationship with God through Christ is is strictly private. It's between me and God and I don't need the church I would question their salvation because we're, we're drawn to each other. We love to gather together. And Jesus assumes this. Our Father, that we're together. The devaluing of the church of Jesus Christ as the gathered body of Christ, that's foreign to biblical Christianity. We gather together. This is the ultimate thing we do. And while it is glorious to pray alone in our prayer closet, as it were, as Jesus taught How much more glorious it is when we're together, isn't it? Jesus is already expecting that his followers gather and commune with God together. So how do you declare your gospel relationship to God? How do you declare that he is your father? Well, first of all, never miss a day of thanking God for the cross of Christ. Never miss a day of thanking God for the Father's choice, thanking God for the Son's grace to introduce you, and thanking God for the Spirit's grace to regenerate you. Never forget that. Never forget. Keep the gospel, keep the death of Christ, keep the resurrection of Christ, keep the ascension of Christ, keep his current ministry of interceding on your behalf, keep that in the forefront of your mind, keep that at the center of your communion with God. I'm amazed how many Christians can go months without talking about the gospel, much less thinking about it. I I don't understand that. Pray the gospel in the spirit of gratitude. Acknowledge to God that you were sunk, you were mired in your own sin, your own depravity, that you owed to God the debt of a lifetime of rebellion. You fully deserved his eternal justice. That ought to be in your prayers every day. Declare your gospel relationship with God because you, you are reminding yourself that it was only the Spirit of God that opened your eyes to the gospel so that the Son may introduce you to the Father according to the Father's choice. Your spiritual eyes were opened, your spiritual mind was opened to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that only through him would you enter into relationship with your Father. So the first declaration, declare your gospel relationship with God. It's the second declaration, declare your intimacy with God. Declare your intimacy with God. This is stunning. Is this one thing for Jesus to say, my father? I mean, he is, after all, the one and only son of God. He has been with his father since before the foundation of the world. He has enjoyed and basked in the glory of his father since eternity past. One father, one son. 
and how gracious and how kind and how benevolent that the singular and only and unique Son of God, because you may come to the Father through him, has said and given you permission to address his Father as your Father. This is shocking. This is stunning. This is the familiar imagery of family. This is the imagery of adoption. God is your father because he drew near to you. It was his choice by his grace, his goodwill, his compassion, his love. God came near to us through Christ and he counts the citizens of heaven. He counts those who are in Christ, not just randomly and and off to the side and from a distance as citizens of the nation of God. I can't wrap my mind around this. You and I are part of the family of God. That's, That's stunning. God came near. Theologians call this the imminence of God. It's from the Latin word imanere, which means to dwell or to remain, that God dwells with us. One of the prophetic titles given to Christ, Emmanuel, means God with us. In prayer, you're savoring and enjoying and relishing that God is near. God is with you. Isn't that a glorious declaration? God is with me. God is with me. God, because of Christ, will never leave you, never forsake you. You luxuriate in the safety and protection and provision of this almighty, all-powerful God who has drawn you into his family. And on top of that, by the way, since you're part of his family, then what else have you received because of Christ? You've received many brothers and sisters, haven't you? Your truest family is not defined by blood. It's not defined by your DNA. Your truest family is defined by all who may rightly call God Father. And because God is my Father, I walk in this world with countless brothers and sisters. You are the treasure in this life. My biological family might fail. They might fall apart. But the family of God is set for eternity and will always be mine to enjoy as we all enjoy our Heavenly Father together. How do you declare your intimacy with God? Speak to Him as you would a loving Father. All earthly loving fathers are modeled after the original, right? A father is one in whose arms you fall when you're weary, one from whom you willingly take correction and wisdom, one who gives you safety and security and strength. If your earthly father failed you, then you're among friends because 100% of earthly fathers have failed their kids at one level or another because we're all sinners. But your heavenly father is everything a father was supposed to be. Why? Because he's the heavenly original. Fatherhood is modeled after God the Father. And so everything that in your mind you would hope and, and, and believe that a father ought to be, God is. You may enjoy and declare your intimacy with God. Our first declaration, declare your gospel relationship with God. Second declaration, declare your intimacy with God. But let's do the other side of that coin. Just because God is your father does not remove the duty and obligation to view him with the utmost respect and reverence and esteem. And now the comparison to earthly fathers quickly slips away from us. Our third declaration is declare your awe of God. Declare your awe of God. 
contrary to much of American Christianity, which is trying to be hip, trying to be cool, trying to uh, please unbelievers, trying to bring God down to our level, Jesus does not command us to pray, our Father who hangs out with us. He doesn't command that. No, our Father who is in heaven. This is a massive theological statement. This isn't just the address where we send our prayers. This isn't just so you know which direction to look when you're praying. It is the abode of God. It is the place that is not accessible to you except through Christ and your own death. Pretty big deal to go to heaven. Kind of a final thing, isn't it? This is an admission that God is beyond you. He's higher than you. He's above you. He's other than you. This is what theologians often call the transcendence of God. This is the opposite, so to speak, of his imminence. His imminence says that he's close, he's near. His transcendence says he's far, he's big, he's beyond. The qualifier, our Father who is in heaven, reminds you that God is not your pal, he is not your buddy. He is the God of heaven. He's the God of wrath. He is our Father because he came near to us in grace, yet he is in heaven, he is above, he is transcendent. God is close to his children because of Christ, but he's distant from his children because of his glory, his utter unapproachableness. You ever had a kid, dads, who's six or seven and tries to call you by your first name? They shouldn't sit down for about a week because you don't call your father, hey, Rob. It's disrespectful. When Solomon finished the glorious temple of God in Jerusalem, he declared how inadequate it was, how ridiculous it was to think that the God of the universe would live merely on earth. And in his prayer of dedication, Solomon prayed this in 1 Kings 8. But will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Never make the critical theological and relational error of believing that because God in Christ is your father, that somehow this simplifies God or lowers God. That is unsuitable, that is unacceptable. That level of overfamiliarity is simply disrespect. It's my firm belief that the Christian church at times has largely forgotten what it means to fear God. I have heard Christians say, fearing God is what they did in the Old Testament. I'm just here to love God. God has not changed God is more fearsome as he's always been. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 defines what your duty, what your goal, what your purpose for even existing is. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is your purpose. It is to fear God. Oh, and how we've lost a sense in our worship of fearing God, of knowing that that we are, because we're gathered as the body of Christ, we are gathered before God. That should be an awe-inspiring thought. This is not something that we take lightly. There's no informal worship. That's an oxymoron. If you are going to the tabernacle in the wilderness where the glory of God is over the tabernacle in a flame or in in fire, in, in, in a cloud, you wouldn't go, hey, buddy, let's just walk in together. Ask Nadab and Abihu how that worked out for them. They were french fried by the God of the universe for being informal. 
I'm not speaking to how you dress or how you act or any of that. I'm speaking to your heart attitude that we crawl on our faces before a holy God because he is transcendent. He is transcendent. He is bigger than we can possibly imagine. To declare and express your awe of God, you need theological language. You need a way to express yourself. It's completely inadequate. It's not enough to think that by some emotional, spontaneous expression, you'll be able to declare your awe of God. I I think very few things makes me sadder in the church to hear professing Christians pray, and it becomes apparent that due to failed shepherds and due to a, a failed devotion to the word of God, they have no language. They don't have any words with which to express the awe of God. They end up using colloquialisms. Oh, God, you're just so cool. You know, lightning out of strike just once when somebody says that. There's no language. So what do you do? Well, God knows this, and he's giving you help. He's giving you words to put into your mind, to put into your mouth. And, of course, our greatest example would be using the Psalms to help you pray. Using the Psalms to help you express and declare the awe of God. You'll be enriched in your ability to declare your awe of God. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 1 verse 6 declares that God knows the way of the righteous. God is all-knowing. He's all-seeing. Now you're beginning to declare your awe of him. Psalm 2 verse 5 says that God terrifies the rebellious in his fury. That God is a God of wrath. He is furious at sin. Psalm 3 verse 5 declares that God is a shield about me. That God is able to sustain and protect. That there is literally nothing that can get through to him to me. Psalm 4, verse 4, declares that God ought to cause trembling in your heart. Trembling. And I know we use that word metaphorically, but have you ever been so scared that your legs are actually shaking? That's what it means to tremble before God. Psalm 5, verse 2, calls God my king. Verse 6 declares the other purity and sinlessness of God. You see how the Psalms give you a language they give you words with which to declare your awe of god if you don't think you know how to pray and declare the awe of god then pray through the psalms and repeat them and reflect them the first declaration declare your gospel relationship with god the second declaration declare your intimacy with god and the third declaration declare your awe of god and we find those three declarations in our father who is in heaven And now the disciples' prayer transitions and it goes into a series of requests. The first request we'll divide in two because there are two major implications for it. Hallowed be your name. The first request in your prayer of worship, request your personal holiness. Request your personal holiness. Your personal obedience. Your personal set-apartness to obey the Lord and to be in covenant obedience to him. Jesus continues, hallowed be your name. Now, at first you may be saying, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with me. doesn't have anything to do with you. Well, let me walk you through it. I like that the Legacy Standard Bible has retained the traditional translation, hallowed be your name. It kind of a, just as a traditional old word, I like it. But this is from the root Greek word, which is, in other places, translated sanctified or consecrated or made holy, set apart, made different. The name of God, 
Hallowed be your name. It represents his person. It represents his character. But here's what's a very important little point that, that really makes a big difference. Hallowed, this word, is not an adjective. It's not a description like his holy or his hallowed name. It's not an adjective. It's not a descriptor. It's a verb. It's a verb. It is to make your name holy. In fact, it's a passive verb. Let your name be made holy. And now the name, the character, the state of God is already holy. After all, the angels in heaven declare, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here's the question. If this is a request, let your name be made holy. And if God is already categorically and by definition holy, then we must be including another party. Someone who must make the reputation of God holy. And that would be you. To make God's name holy is to live in the way which reflects his holiness. And so your, your prayer is, may your name and reputation be holy and hallowed and set apart as demonstrated by my life. You don't have to pray for God to be holy. He's already holy. You have to pray for you to reflect that holiness accurately. And doesn't this make sense? You've just declared your gospel relationship with God, your intimacy with God, your awe of God. The only right response is to seek to please God. And now, based on the disciples' prayer, Paul's exhortation in Romans 12 makes even more sense. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, gospel relationship with God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, intimacy with God, which is your spiritual service of worship, awe of God. It fits. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. I have a hard question for you. It's one only you can answer. According to this model prayer, the first request is for your own obedience to the Lord, your own holiness, your own sanctification. How often do we begin prayers asking for things for ourselves? What we're asking for first is holiness. And prayer is the best place to think about this. Prayer is the means to our obedience, isn't it? In prayer, you find the strength, you find the will, you find the power, you find the yearning, you find the wisdom to obey God. In prayer, you find your will being conformed to his. In prayer, you find yourself, as Paul says, approving, agreeing with the will of God. In prayer, you find yourself softening and breaking your own sinful resistance. Your your prayer might be, our Father who is in heaven, I don't want to obey, but I'm going to want to before I say amen. I'm going to pray until I want to obey. I'm going to confess my recalcitrance and my rebellion and my stubbornness. Mold me, break me, shatter me into a thousand pieces until every one of them is obedient to you. In prayer, you find that you can surrender your idolatrous desires to his perfect desires. 
And you might say, well, how do I identify my idolatrous desires? What are those things you want more than anything and you'd be willing to sin to get it? What is that thing you're trying to avoid and you'd be willing to sin to avoid it? What is that thing that makes you the most angry? That'll be something that you find is just something you want as an idol in your heart. And when you don't get it, you get mad. And you bring those things to the Lord and you say, may your name be made holy. May your reputation be made holy by how I act today. I have a simple question for you. What part of your day does not identify you as a follower of Christ? Does not set apart God's name and reputation as holy. You take that part of your day and as we saying a little bit ago, take it to the Lord in prayer. Hallowed be your name. The first request in your prayer of worship, request your personal holiness. There's a second implication though here. Second request in your prayer of worship, request worldwide holiness. Request worldwide holiness. Now, if we peeked ahead to verse 10, The future kingdom focus tells us that the holiness of God's name, the set-apartness, the recognition of who he is, will only be fully accomplished on earth when the Son of God is reigning and ruling. This request is concerned with God's glory, God's honor, God's name, God's fame. In the same way that God is already by definition holy and that that holiness must be reflected in your life, Also, the kingdom focus of this prayer expands that vision to the holiness of God being reflected in the world. This is a prayer that the name of God be observed, be believed upon, be understood, be holy by the men and women of the world. To fast forward ahead, what this will look like in easy to understand fashion, the very end of Zechariah chapter 14 says that when Christ returns, the world will be so holy that even the pots and pans are stamped holy unto the Lord. What does it mean to say, may your name be made holy in the world? From a Jewish standpoint, this is a call to God to vindicate himself, to cast vengeance on his enemies. In the Jewish context, it's a call for God to silence his enemies. Or let me put it this way. The call for God to make his name holy is a call for God to wipe the earth clean of all that is unholy and refuse to worship God. It's a call for God to set up his kingdom on this earth. And what's the very next thing? Your kingdom come. And so that is very clear. I want to show you this. I think it'll be helpful to you. Turn to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, in verse 22, in this all-important section of Ezekiel, this is concerning God's future work in the world, we're going to see something that looks familiar to us. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. See if you recognize this. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. 
I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. You can hear the echo of the request. Let your name be made holy. And God says, will do. So precisely what is God declaring he's going to do to prove himself holy? Well, the greater context tells us. Verse 24. And I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. This is the future regathering of Israel. And they won't spiritually fail like they did after the exile. But you have to wonder, if you were here for our series on Sunday nights through Ezra and Nehemiah, we found that Ezra and Nehemiah, the story of the exiles coming back from Israel, that it ends in failure that they couldn't set up the kingdom. So you, so you might say, well, what's going to be different when God gathers Israel together yet again? Here's what will be different. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. Oh, that's what makes the difference. Israel will be recipients of the new covenant as a nation indwelt by the Holy Spirit. By the way, Jesus said you must be born of water and of the word. He's referring to Ezekiel 36, born of water and of the spirit, that you must be cleansed by God and you must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can hear the new covenant. Look at verse 33. Thus says Lord Yahweh, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. This is the restoration of the land, the restoration of the cities of Israel after the great tribulation. Verse 34, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. Then they will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste. Desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that remain all around you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and will do it. In other words, hallowed will be my name. And he goes on, verse 37, This also I will let the house of Israel inquire of me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for holy offerings, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed times. So will the wasted cities be filled with the flocks of men. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Now you might be saying, now wait just a minute. The Millennium Series is on Sunday nights. How did you sneak it into Matthew? Why are we talking about this? Because Jesus did in the disciples' prayer. He said that when we make the request, may you make your name to be made holy, he's clearly referencing Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. And in context, God's name will be made holy when? When Christ returns and Israel is restored. So it makes perfect sense that the prayer continues, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this have to do with your personal prayer life? Well, broadly, this is Jesus telling us to have a concern for the holiness of the world. We're to have that concern. 
And certainly we can have that concern now. We're not going to bring the kingdom in. Christ will do that. He is the one who brings the kingdom, but we are to be the influence in the kingdom. We are to be the ones that bring kingdom citizens into the kingdom. I've been the pastor for quite a few years now, and my experience has been that I think very few households who claim to be a Christian household actually have an abiding concern for the evangelization and the holiness of the world as a whole, that this isn't expressed in their homes. It should be expressed in prayer. It should be expressed in the word. It should be expressed in what's, talking about, what's talked about. The Christian home is God's tool for kingdom truths. The Christian home, the truly Christian home, is the one that sees itself as a tool in God's hand, that the home isn't just about the marriage, just about the kids, just about buying the house, just about getting the two cars and all of that. No, the, the Christian home is a tool The marriage ought to be honoring to the Lord for the sake of being the tool in God's hands for the worldwide holiness. The raising of children in a way that honors the Lord is a a tool in God's hand for worldwide holiness to send out those little disciples, to make other disciples. The living of life in the church, which is honoring to the Lord, this is to make your family a tool for the sake of the gospel. Everything we do in our homes ought to be as a tool in God's hands to spread the gospel, the growth of the church. I believe with all of my heart that American evangelicalism has lied repeatedly to professing believers to make Christianity some sort of add-on to my already established program for my life. No, the Christian in the Christian home is one which is delightfully concerned about worldwide holiness. How refreshing it is when an entire household is concerned for the world that we're commanded to pray for. And by the way, even if you live alone, a concern in prayer for the salvation of the lost and the vindication of God's holy name in the world, this can occupy you day and night. And by the way, this occupation with worldwide holiness, with with evangelism, with the lost coming to faith in Christ, this puts perspective on everything. It stops you from being petty. It stops you from being selfish. It stops you from thinking about yourself all the time. I'll never forget as a teenager meeting one precious lady who was now confined to one little tiny room, could barely get around, and she's in a kind of a, a nursing facility and getting to meet her and an entire wall filled with pictures of missionaries. And, she, and I remember her telling me, well, I, I start on this side and I, I pray for them for a while and I pray for them, I pray for them, and when I get tired, I take a nap and then I go back to what I was doing. You know what she had all over her? A smile. Because she was concerned for worldwide holiness. She could do nothing else, but she could pray. She could pray. Think about Anna, the older widow who saw baby Jesus. Luke 2 tells this story, beginning in verse 36, that she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She saw baby Jesus. She was one who spent her time in prayer. And what was her focus and what was she telling anyone who would listen? 
She spoke of Christ. She spoke of waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, which in the scope of the redemptive plan of God means the vindication of God on the earth. When? When Christ returns. When Christ returns. You want to put a stop to your constant focus on your problems, on yourself, your trials, your challenges, your feelings, your rights, me, 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 me. Have a worldwide focus in prayer, and it'll put your life in proper perspective. Oh, we ought to be a church filled with praying missionaries. That's what we ought to be. All the themes we've explored this morning, I came across a a psalm that expounds on all of them. Declaring your gospel relationship with God. Your intimacy with God, declaring your awe of God, requesting your personal holiness, requesting worldwide holiness. I want to have you turn with me to Psalm 96. In Psalm 96, I'd like to close our time together today. And I'd like to ask us to stand together as an act of worship because this reflects all five of those concepts. Would you stand with me? I want you to see if you can identify the themes of salvation, of intimacy with God, of awe of God, holiness in your life, and worldwide holiness and vindication. Psalm 96, follow along as I read as our final act of worship during this time. Psalm 96, sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, bless his name, Proclaim good news of his salvation from day to day. Recount his glory among the nations, his wondrous deeds among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is more fearsome than all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Lift up an offering and come into his courts. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. He will render justice to the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar as well as its fullness. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Would you remain standing as we pray together? Our Father, we come before you now in awe of you, thankful for you, thankful for the fact that you are our Father. Hallowed is your name. May you be made holy in our lives. May you be made holy worldwide. Ultimately, we know this won't happen until Christ returns, but may we be a part of the gospel work of bringing more and more citizens into the kingdom. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.